And welcome to Big Tent, Big Tents, Democracy Won't Save Itself Forum. Big Tent USA is a national women-led pro-democracy organization promoting civic engagement through education and activism. We have all been riveted and horrified with the news of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And as we watch a sovereign democratic country endure an unprovoked attack by an authoritarian bully, we are reminded about the fragility of our own democracy. Tonight, we are honored to be joined by four democracy superheroes who will provide an overview of the greatest threats facing us and how they and we can address these threats. This forum is not our regular Zoom format because these experts have a lot of ground to cover and action items. So with that, we are going to um, not be soliciting questions from the audience tonight because we want you all to walk away from this call with action items on how to get involved and engaged. Our forum is moderated by the highly qualified and uniquely talented Hagar Shamali. If you have watched the news this past week, you will certainly have seen Hagar sharing her expertise on the current crisis in Ukraine, specifically around the effectiveness of sanctions. Hagar is a foreign policy and national security expert and has worked at the White House, the State Department, and the Department of the Treasury. Hagar hosts a weekly news show on YouTube called Oh My World. She is an adjunct professor at Columbia and regularly appears on CNN, Bloomberg, and MSNBC. So please take a look at her YouTube channel and subscribe. It's in our chat. Given Hagar's background in foreign policy and specifically her work in the Bush and Obama administrations, she has graciously agreed to spend a few extra minutes with us after our last speaker to discuss the use of sanctions against Russia. And with that, I turn the forum over to Hagar. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kitty. I am so excited to be here. It, that was a, a super kind introduction. Um, can you hear me all well? Everybody looks like they're good. It looks like you're nodding. Okay. As Kitty mentioned, my name is Hagar Shamali, and I'm your host for the evening for this incredible event organized by Big Tent. Their work and the work of this organization and the individuals that we'll be featuring tonight, their work is just so important. And as Kitty mentioned, the timing of this could not be better. It really underscores how urgent the issues that we're going to be talking about are, how much we have work to do, and how much we need the help of everyone involved. When the event was planned, no one knew that Russia would be invading Ukraine in what is fundamentally an attack on our democracy and democracies around the world. And if there's anything I learned in my years in government, and in particular since 2016, is that our democracy is fragile, Kitty said the same thing, and that we have to consistently fight to make it better, to, it, to maintain it, to ensure that it, doesn't, it isn't under threat. And working on it basically means being engaged, writing op-eds, promoting grassroots organizations, flogging flyers, volunteering, getting involved, acting, making your voice loud, protesting, whatever it might be. And that's why we're going to be talking to all these organizations tonight. And I'm so excited about it. If we don't strengthen our democracy at home, it is very tough to fight for democracy abroad. And it is even tougher to fight those who are attacking our democracy like Russia right now. So let's get started because we have a super tight schedule. Just a reminder that before we start, please follow the chat where we're gonna have links and resources. And when we talk about the follow-up action plans, we're gonna be referring to everything that's gonna be in that chat box. 
So we're going to be starting with Governor Deval Patrick from Bridge Together. Governor Patrick, he's the former governor of Massachusetts. He hosts a fabulous podcast called the Being American Podcast, and he's currently the chairman of Bridge Together, which aims to support the grassroots organizations necessary for sustained engagement beyond elections. Governor, I'm going to turn to you. Can you talk to us about the State of the Union and disunion? You know, it's kind of the layup for tonight. And tell us about your, bridge, your work at Bridge Together. Well, Hagar, first of all, thank you for having me to you and Kitty and all of the Big Tent organization. And thank you for moderating uh, tonight. You asked me the question that uh, I guess we're all waiting uh, to have answered by uh, President, uh, President Biden. He has said, as you know, uh, and I know our guests uh, uh, understand that um, uh, right now we are all facing and were even before Russia's incursion into invasion of uh, uh, Ukraine, uh, a challenge to democracy. And I think, um, frankly, it turns out that um, democracy depends on all these sort of unwritten rules, right? Rules around decorum and restraint and respect and truth for that matter. Things that we haven't written down, but we took as uh, fundamentals um, in our own democracy. And, uh, uh, and as we assessed uh, evaluated and inspired democracies uh, around the world. I think so much of that has been undermined in the last little while, and not all of it can be laid at the feet of uh, the former president uh, and his uh, and his followers. Not all of it, um, because you know the division ultimately is up to us. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that we don't know each other very well. We get cartoon impressions of each other. We don't really have the experience of knowing and understanding each other, which brings me to the importance of grassroots organizing, not just in time for a campaign, although that's enormously important, um, but it's very much about permanent community building, really. Um, and that's what we're trying to do with Bridge Together. Hey, Gar, I am Sorry, not. Sorry, you know, I'm <laughs> two years into this pandemic and I still don't know how to take off my. I do it all the time. <laughs> I do it all the time. Um, I wanted to know if you could talk about, you know, the importance of acting now and the, you know, if you could talk a little bit about voter suppression, what you're yes. seeing across the country in that space specifically. Well, some nearly 20 states, I think it's 19 states, have, uh, have enacted or considered over 400 uh, measures. Um, in those 19 states, they've actually moved measures that just make it harder to vote. And they're intentional about it. It's under the pretext of uh, voter, um, uh, uh, voter vote, voting irregularities in the 2020 uh, election, presidential election, an election which um, President Trump's own cabinet officers, uh, including the attorney general, declared was the uh, uh, safest election and, uh, and highest integrity election in our history. Um, but nonetheless, spinning that lie um, has been the justification for lots of uh, legislatures in Republican-led states to pass measures that make it harder to register, harder to stay registered once you are registered, harder to cast a ballot in person as well as uh, um, by mail. And it is all designed not to respond to an actual problem, but to the 
to the challenge of uh, of a of, of a participa participatory democracy where you know we have a real contest of ideas. The Supreme Court, sadly, um, has um, uh, well, shall I say, enabled certainly overlooked um, many of these uh, actions. The Voting Rights Act has been weakened by the court. Um, and these re and recent challenges uh, in the uh, in the federal courts, at least at the Supreme Court level, have not been successful. So, it is a big concern. And to be clear, and I'm sorry to go on, Hagar, but this is really a, a serious um, issue. This is not just about inconvenience. It's not just about you know having to get um, an ID to prove that you are who you say you are. It is about you know, in some cases, being able to use not your state uh, student ID, uh, that's not okay, but you can use your gun license. Um, there are some real choices here. Um, and then there are a number of these states that have instituted um, measures that say they can, uh, that Republican partisans can overturn an outcome they don't like. Um, that hasn't gotten anywhere near the attention that it, uh, uh, that it should. But um, that to me is the most pernicious uh, of the elements. That is, I will say, if I may, half the challenge, how we make voting more accessible. Um, if you give me another minute, I'll tell you why I think, uh, what I think our other big challenge is. Yes, you have time, please. We wanna hear, we wanna talk about, we wanna hear about the difficulties you have in, between rural and urban areas, key swing states, please, the floor is yours. Well, I, <clears throat> first of all, in terms of these voter suppression laws, um, the legislative record in many states makes it clear that, uh, that the intent is to disadvantage black, brown, poor, um, older voters, um, many constituencies and students, many constituencies that have been trending uh, 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 democratic. Um, but frankly, it's anybody who is... Um, who has a busy life, anybody who has a job who can't get time, any parent who can't figure out how to get the kids from uh, daycare and get dinner on and get to the polling place before um, uh, they close at hours that are changing and would find it so much more convenient to participate in their own civic life by being able to fill out a, uh, uh, a mail-in ballot the way President Trump and many uh, others do all the time. Um, so it is compromising our democracy. And as I said, I think vote, how we make voting uh, accessible is half the problem and a big one. The other half of the problem is how to make voting more meaningful because it is still the case that we have folks who are registered who could vote, but who don't because they think it, will, it won't matter. That the noise, the arguments, the gridlock, the theater in Washington has nothing to do with them or in their state house nothing to do with them. And that is why I think the grassroots organizing, the kind of thing we're trying to support through Bridge Together, local groups that are already existing, already working in their neighborhoods, in their communities, through their relationships to build community so that they can sustain that staff support and those, and those learnings all the time and not just flex up just in time uh, for the next election. When you see that theme over and over again in elections, right, is this that voters didn't go out because they didn't think it mattered. And you see that at every kind of election, federal, state. I saw it in my town elections last November. How do you combat that 
message? I mean, I, obviously grassroots plays a part, but can you expand on that a little bit further? Because that is so important. And so, so I think, so I, I, I really think it's critical. And it's, it, this is a, this is more about a sort of a study in human personality rather than uh, sort of uh, election or campaign tactics. It, it is, we, we take guidance from people we trust. And those relationships take time. Um, they are, and they have to. They have to transcend, or they often transcend more than one experience. The best grassroots organizing uh, um, uh, efforts that I've seen are ones where folks start not with the question, you know, which side are you on, or who are you inclined to vote for, um, but tell me about you and your family, and what are the things you worry about, and how can we help, and. Uh, come be a part of a group that can make sure that everybody in this group or in this neighborhood has the food they need at, at Thanksgiving um, to, for themselves and their, and their families, or has some way to uh, think about and, and, uh, and get advice on how to get adequate daycare or to get um, a new job. There are relationships that are built over time by, um, by interactions with people. And then when it's time to think about how you use those relationships to um, advance citizen power, how you move your school uh, committee in a different direction, how you move your town council in a different direction, how you move your Congress in a different direction. You're talking to people you know, and you're asking them to make it personal and to talk to others they know, and it multiplies. Ask each one to get five others and those five to get five others. And before you know it, you have, and you are informing, by the way, Hagar, especially in these states that have uh, made it much more uh, difficult to, uh, um, to register and to vote. You're informing people about how to develop their own vote plan in advance, how to make sure they have the right information, the right identification, the right locations, a plan to get to and from uh, the voting, um, uh, the voting, the polling uh, place, and a ride if they need so, and what they can do to help a neighbor who may need that kind of help. You know, I'm sure you already know this, but this is exactly how President Emmanuel Macron won the election in France. He is the first independent to win in the history of elections right. in France since, since they've had presidential elections. And he did it through this very grassroots system where it was exactly as you said, it was friends of friends that gathered together and the main questions had to do about their, their daily problems and how the government could solve those problems. Um, you know, so when I, I one more question. Yeah, yeah, sorry. I was just gonna say, when I, when I ran for governor of Massachusetts, I hadn't run for anything before. And our, um, our political dynamic in Massachusetts, though we are viewed from outside as reliably blue, is really more insider outsider than it is Democrat Republican. Um, it's a very hard political establishment to, to, to penetrate. And we ran a grassroots campaign over a course of two years for those practical reasons, because that was the only way um, to break in. But there was a philosophical reason too, which I think is a part of how we think about Bridge Together. And that is there are an awful lot of people who have checked out and they need to be invited to check back in. And it has to be more personal than, uh, than just campaign ads and, and mailers and, and the like. Yeah. Okay, one more quick question and then I wanna close with the action items we can all follow up on. Um, and so the, you know, one more is just, what are you hearing from, through your work as um, 
as 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 to what matters, what comes up as a real is it you know it must be a range of things. But what are the things you hear the most? Is it income? So I think the polarization. I, yes, yes, and it's so it's such an important question, Hagar, because uh, the 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 this isn't just about you know a a delivering out of information and instruction. It's about listening and receiving uh, feedback on. Uh, on messaging, on substance, on policy choices. And I think what we're hearing um, is very much about, the way I describe it is the importance of policy touching people. That infrastructure is enormously important, but really, really uh, much more so when it comes down to your road or the bridge between you and your job or your own access to broadband. And so how do we, how do we talk about and how do we deliver in ways that actually touch people, that make a difference. We're hearing, uh, as you know, lots of concerns about inflation, um, but those concerns, I would say, are different among an awful lot of the working poor and the and working women that we meet. Um, then sometimes they're more nuanced, if you will, than the uh, than the polls sometimes say. And there's a deep, deep concern that our leadership. Um, in various uh, uh, ways, certainly in the last administration, um, didn't take the opportunity, especially during times of crisis like, uh, like COVID, to ask us to turn to each other rather than on each other. So there's an awful lot of just tuning out of politics, which, which is, again, is this notion of, of creating an environment where people feel like it's about insiders and outsiders, and the insiders are just about the inside. So I, I think there is an awful lot of value in, um, in trying to support existing local groups that are trying to do this community building all the time um, and continuing to leverage that and to learn uh, from that and then to knit these groups together so that they share their, uh, their own learnings and best um, practices. And I think sustaining that, not just for the next election, but for the one after that and the one after that, so it's a regular habit is where, um, and we do it in every community, in every state, because every American matters. I think there is where we rescue our democracy and actually give America the chance to be the participatory um, uh, experiment um, we set out to become. Yes, that is so well said. So Governor, before I let you go, can you quickly let us know how we can help what are the action items we can follow up on to help bridge together and in general this mission? Well, I would invite everyone, if I may, to check us out at bridgetogether.org. Um, this is a 501c3, and we welcome contributions. We welcome insights and advice. We are active in uh, specific states right now, in Georgia, in Nevada, in Arizona, uh, in Pennsylvania. Um, and um, we are looking at a couple uh, of others, depending on resources. And we are, at, we are making our grants right now. Um, uh, and started, in fact, uh, last year. So um, we're, uh, we're interested in feedback. We're interested in, uh, in support. We're interested in, uh, in intelligence about other uh, local existing uh, groups in the targeted areas that we're looking at that, uh, that can become a part of this network. Wonderful. Good. Well, okay. As the governor mentioned, if you'd like to donate, please go to the link in the chat. Um, actually, let's be more direct. Just go donate and we're going to make sure to follow up on all those things, you know, right. check the link, contribute, give advice and insight. And uh, if anyone needs a way to get in touch, 
we bridge together. They can reach out to Big Ten and we'll get, we'll help you out. Thank, Thank you. you so and much pass the word, time. pass the word, let others know. Yes, for sure. <laughs> Thank you so much. You're great. Thank you. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you. Um, now we're going to chat with Angelo Carson of Media Matters for America, which is a web-based nonprofit progressive research and information center dedicated to comprehensively monitoring, analyzing, and correcting conservative information in the U.S. media. Thank you for what you do. Bill O'Reilly, whom you all remember, I'm sure the sexual harasser dude, he described Media Matters as the most dangerous organization in America, which I imagine must be a badge of honor. Um, you guys, Angelo, you challenge right-wing bias and you monitor social media across the United States to conservative, uh, to correct conservative misinformation. And that misinformation, um, things like big lie, anti-vax, so on, we could go on, obviously, Russia interfering in our elections repeatedly. Um, this stuff has a real impact on our democracy and on our lives. Um, can you tell us, start off, tell us about your work, tell us about the mission, um, the main problems that you see right now and your priorities, um, and what has changed about misinformation? You know, is it is it spreading faster? Any insights that you can offer? Sure, thank you. Um, I will apologize in advance. I'm gonna be a total bummer for everybody, but I will close on a somewhat positive note, but this is, this is, I mean, part of the fight about democracy is actually the, is the media landscape. I mean, the vehicle for accelerationism, for tearing down the institutions that we have, for combating the norms that the governor referenced before, um, uh, and for implementing authoritarianism is, the vehicle for that is, is the news media, the, the information ecosystem. And, you know, we see that in the states in particular, where Republicans especially are organizing power on what used to be considered the fringes. And the two examples that you brought up, which was the big lie and anti-vax content, specifically anti-COVID content, are really good illustrations of that, um, as is QAnon. Um, and they all kind of center around the, uh, the right-wing sort of media, that core, which is, it's massive. It is a big, it is, there is a big imbalance between what the right-wing echo chamber represents. And it is an echo chamber. It's not just that they have more broadcast and wider reach, but that they also then echo and repeat the things over and over and over again, building up muscle memory and an amplification imperative amongst their, their audience. Um, and that means that, that that structure itself, which just to give some context, if you look at the what people consume as like a pie, um, on balance, we track this every day, right wing, the right wing echo chamber has about 55 to 65% of the share of voice. So Ben Shapiro, who's sort of this sort of right-wing podcaster, for example, is the single most influential person on reproductive health in the entire country. Um, there's not anything even close to that. You can combine all of the reproductive justice organizations and every mainstream news outlet combined, and they still would not reach this influence that one, one comment from Ben Shapiro would have as it relates to reproductive health, just to illustrate the power of what I mean by that imbalance. And so... They have that. So structurally, that is what what we're dealing with every day. And what that means is that you can have extremists, outside actors like Russia or others, disinformation, cheating, um, hide and exploit that echo chamber for their own purposes. And a lot of what we're seeing now, and this gets to your question about what changed, and I'll give a couple examples and kind of run through uh, uh, some some ways to sort of bend that trend line. Um, you know, one of the things that we're seeing and uh, it one of the things that we're seeing in particular amongst this sort of this echo chamber is a push against 
uh, against one of the big Y and then anti-vax content. So I'll start with anti-vax content. So you know, if you go back to March of 2020, one of the things that took place back then around hydroxychloroquine, for instance, mm -hmm. was that there was a recognition that COVID was bad and people were scared, right? That was not something, there was a little bit of pushback early on. It was, a, you know, there was a little bit of it being a hoax, but then Fox News and the rest of the right-wing echo chamber sort of moved off it, um, and uh, pretty quickly, actually. And then they turned on a dime. And the way that it happened, the way that they turned on a dime, which then led to people going and starting these reopen events as early as April 2020, that started helping the Trump pushing out those tweets and helping gin up that pushback there was a narrative about hydroxychloroquine, uh, a medication that's out there being a cure for COVID. And it started on Twitter. Um, it started with two guys and a Google Doc that claimed to have research proving that it was a cure. Uh, and then they tweeted it to Laura Ingram a bunch who then had it on her show and then showed it to Donald Trump. And what you got was Trump talking about it, it then making its way into the right-wing echo chamber and becoming the dominant narrative amongst the right. And that's why we call ourselves fighting misinformation and not fact-checking. It's because there was a lot of stuff there that wasn't factual, but the big narrative there wasn't about hydroxychloroquine itself. It was to undermine the idea that the pandemic was bad, that COVID was dangerous. Um, and that was the intention behind it, was to actually start to challenge the idea of public health measures. And that trend continued all the way through once the vaccine was created, right? So then you started to have conspiracy theories about, uh, about you know, uh, microchips in the vaccines, that stuff will only affect the core. I don't think that was the most damaging disinformation about the vaccines. The real damaging disinformation about the vaccines, and this is where it ties in with the election stuff, is the things that affected people's cost calculus. So for example, saying that if you got the vaccine, people were experiencing sudden death. Well, even if you're not an anti-vaxxer, if the dominant narrative that you're seeing in your social media feed is the idea that some people are dropping dead suddenly, you may wait. Right. Um, even if you believe in vaccines, that was part of the idea so to extend the timeline for people's engagement, to start to create doubt, to keep people on the sidelines. As the governor was ever saying before, it's to not have people engaging, to start to sever some of that connective tissue, because that's the antibodies that actually help fight back against false narratives is that connectivity that exists. So we saw the same thing, um, not just in anti-vax content, but also in the big lie context, where, you know, right after the election was called, the uh, there was a moment where it was not contested in the right-wing media, despite the fact that the fever swamps were all up in arms about the results, Fox News had accepted the results. Um, and they still set the editorial agenda for the rest of the right-wing media, at least at the time. They had accepted the results. They issued a memo to their staff saying, you must affirm it as president-elect. And then One American News was out there. Um, and for three days, did nothing but pump the ecosystem full of ideas that you know the Italians had replaced a bunch of vaccine, uh, a bunch of machines in Arizona. They were trying to flip the election, or um, you know, a whole range of other stuff like that. And all of a sudden, Fox News flipped on, flipped on a dime, and you went from eh, begrudging acceptance to 774 segments attacking the election results within a two-week time period, um, which helped build the scaffolding for the January 6th insurrection. And and all that's to say. That one, you know, if we're thinking about the fight for democracy, um, the real thing that matters here is, is actually going to be the, the media landscape. They're going to, to affect both the speed at which we accelerate these attacks, um, as well as the effectiveness of them. Uh, I mean, that's why just tonight, you know, where Ukraine issued the first order to its people to evacuate areas. They had not issued any evacuation orders until tonight. And what was the order? If you live near a broadcast tower, you must evacuate because they know that that's where Russia is going to bomb. 
right? They're going to hit the broadcast towers first. The media does make a difference. You have to be able to control or do disproportionately influence the information that people are receiving. And the, just to put a bottom line on it, and then I'll give a little sort of perspective is it doesn't, you know, it, one of the things that, that we've seen is that because that right-wing echo chamber exists, these outside actors have been able to exploit and bad actors have been able to exploit it um, in order to accelerate their objectives. So, you know, the Boogaloos, which is sort of this movement for a second civil war, that all came about because they were helping, they were basically built, organizing off of the back of the TikTok algorithm. Um, they were helped, TikTok was finding new members and it was, you know, the positive side was able to be shut down and that spigot was able to be cut off. But that is an illustration, or most recently with the caravan. You know, that Canadian caravan could have easily been replicated here in the States. And one of the scary things that we saw was right at the end of January, there was a Facebook group for an American caravan that popped up. It had 3,000 members on uh, when we started tracking it at the end of January. And then overnight, it jumped to 130,000 members. And if you started to dig, dig through, what you found was that almost 120,000 of those new members were fake accounts. Um, they were trying to manifest this, right? If you create enough buzz and kinetic energy, you take something that was not real and you make it real. And that's what we're seeing day to day. And that's partly why it feels worse is because misinformation works, disinformation works. And so the tactic is being replicated across the board at scale. Um, so that's the first thing. That's why it feels like it's worse because there's more attempts. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that the infrastructure is worse. Big picture, I would say, and I'm negative about this stuff, that the landscape has actually gotten better. The structures have gotten better, right? Facebook acted um, after they were pressured to take down that account and others like it so that you couldn't have that kinetic energy. I'll have my hat a little bit for that one because we helped push that through. But the point is, is that um, it mattered. Uh, we didn't see the caravan you know, arriving in DC tonight like it was supposed to. And that's because it ended up being a flop because the thing that would have made it real was exposed as a fraud. Um, and that made it harder for people to glom onto it. That would not have happened three years ago. Um, I mean, I, we were dealing with Facebook three years ago. That wasn't the case. Um, or more recently where one American News was not dropped by DirecTV because of a campaign that we've been running focusing on carriage ca uh, efforts, you know, cable companies, which is really the lever with these providers, um, both uh, through an Unfox by Cable Box campaign and then this effort to diminish One American News. So, so bottom line is, I know it feels worse, and it is. It does feel worse. There's more attempts. It does work. Misinformation and disinformation works. The fight for democracy is tied into the information landscape. It doesn't matter what the issue is. The media is going to affect the outcome. It's probably spent billions of dollars on TV ads, right, for slivers of media attention. Um, but big picture, if I look at the trend lines, there's more antibodies in the system. Um, now that could have that pressure needs to continue. Um, but the levers are, and this gets to our work, making sure that the platforms are uh, not just catering to re reflexively to the right wing pressure, um, and that they're actually enforcing their rules and are being proactive. Um, you know, so identifying new threats and having them implement that into their system so that they're not being able to be exploited by these bad actors. That's the first thing that really is, a, that makes a big difference. And the other is, is not knocking down or weakening or diminishing these big structures. That's going to be Fox and One American News. You take that down, you don't solve the problem, but you lower the temperature and you eliminate a really important fulcrum. So a little bit of bleakness, a lot of bleakness. But um, what I would just say is that it doesn't matter what the issue is, the media matters. And that also there are some fulcrums and building up the muscle memory in the platforms and thinking about the, in particular, what are the structures that enable Fox News to exist, even though they've lost $400 million in, in revenue from advertising um, and actually targeting that instead of the advertisers so that you could force a change will have a big profound downstream effect. Um, and, you know, a little bit on that, especially since we're in an election year, 
I'd be curious to your thoughts as to how you see the state of misinformation in the run-up to these elections, if you think it's going to be a major problem, or are the tech giants and social media platforms better prepared than in the past? Is that something you see Russia taking advantage of um, at the moment? And, um, and, and how is the scaffolding there? And has there been enough done to prevent the way President Trump abused these platforms and the media to spread his own lies and propaganda? I would say that, you know, it, it does matter that Trump is not on the platforms. Um, and just to illustrate is that, you know, when Donald Trump was removed from social media, in particular Facebook and Twitter, misinformation about the election dropped by 73%. 73%. And that's because not only was he a massive promoter of it, but his account and his accounts were so substantial that they were literally warping the algorithms. So they were affecting everybody else's results and the lens to which they were seeing that. So you took out an important lever of and an engine of misinformation. What you got was an overall reduction. Uh, it would have been better if they had acted earlier. We found that Donald Trump broke the rules on Facebook 24% of the time. Um, one out of every four of his posts violated Facebook's terms of service in 2020, and they did nothing about it. Um, and so it, it easily could have been prevented. So I think that they learned some to hopefully learn their lesson, but, but that required effort to make sure that Trump, that they didn't let Trump back on. He is an irresistible temptation as is the large cauldron of kinetic energy that is reflected in the right-wing media. Um, I think there's been a lot done. Uh, and some of it is most people don't know about it, and that's great. That's how you know it's the best stuff. So manipulated media, deep fakes, done. Um, now we have new threats like Rumble, which is an alternative to YouTube that's out there. And I think that's gonna affect local election, elections. You know. That was a big concern of ours in 2019, 2020, was getting the platforms to be more proactive there because we knew that a lot of local races wouldn't have the capacity to fight back against an avalanche of manipulated media and deep fakes. And that's only something that could have been stopped at the platform level. There is a, play, a player out there that's gonna be a threat to local races. And we're gonna have to think about how the local media system um, is more proactive in not enabling and amplifying some of that stuff and is actually addressing it. So that's one threat. The other threat is that, you know, part of the effect of this media ecosystem is that they're attacking individual local. I always look at the local and it gets back to what the governor was saying before, you know, Steve Bannon, through his efforts in organizing, even though he's lost half of his platform in the last year, um, by, because YouTube has taken action against him, <clears throat> there have been in the 47 of the 65 significant districts uh, or uh, precincts that, that have influence, um, there've been 8,500 new officials that have taken over from Steve Bannon's organizing efforts at every level. Um, be it by their partisan officials or government officials. And part of the way they've created that space is by driving people out of office, by using their echo chamber to attack. So when you ask, what does it look like right now? I am worried about what happens at, you know, when you look at it at a, a real deep level, day to day, they're winning a lot of these skirmishes because they have this echo chamber behind them, which creates a lot of kinetic energy, which not only allows them to execute attacks in the short term, but that, that false narrative then gives them the ability to distort the landscape and, and, you know, and achieve some of these results. So it's, it's basically like a massive get up the vote operation for them. So I am worried about that. Um, so I think there's been a lot done, uh, there's no doubt, but there's a huge amount more work to be done beyond that. And I think the way that I think about the problem is we can't fix it all, but what we can do as an organization, I think our responsibility is, is not just to do rapid response, which is basically just trench warfare, just holding the line, it's to identify a couple of those fulcrums, a couple of those pivots, the things that will really matter to either prevent the major threat 
um, or to fix the biggest problem that is going to influence that trend line. And I think if we look at it from that perspective, we should stay laser focused on ensuring that the platforms do not backslide, they enforce their rules against bad actors because it makes a difference. Um, it really does. Um, that's how you get the biggest bang for your buck. And that's where a lot of the cheating happens. And that's what we're really focused on doing is stopping this cheating. Uh, and then, you know, to an extent, the Fox and One America News stuff. We can't let them exist in the way that they are because every other fight will be harder to win. It's amazing. You're doing yeoman's work. I mean, the fact that you're seeing the results uh, of, of, you know, like how, like you said, at, of things that you've achieved, how Facebook has, has, you know, the metrics that you found of how many times Trump was in violation. Um, I think you said of Facebook or Twitter. Can you give us some tips for the average American citizen on how to identify misinformation online or, you know, combat it, whatever we can do to help? What action items do you have for us that we can do to help? Both so what I, for us yeah. and for you. I think the thing that really, so as a person, just remember that your participation matters. Um, I think one of the effects of all this of these attacks that kind of get lost is the nastiness and the tone um, that we see is that the natural reaction for most people is to duck and cover. Oh God, who wants to be a part of that? You know, people are screaming. You just kind of turn to the side. That's what happens. Um, the problem with that though, especially in a social media environment is that your action or inaction actually ends up having a secondary effect by not engaging. Um, you actually give more weight to the people that are, and specifically to their narratives. That, that becomes the dominant thing. It doesn't teach the algorithm that there's a countervailing or better perspective out there. And that means that that starts to poison networks. So one, people shouldn't dismiss their own, the power of their own participation day to day, not just in, you know, just being giant fact checkers, but in sort of establishing some baselines for what really matters. Speak to the things that matter to you uh, and don't amplify misinformation. So be careful. But uh, but to make it clear when things are too far and where you stand, because oftentimes that helps create a permission structure for others to engage. Um, but at minimum, it helps with the algorithm. And I think we've sort of lost sight of how important we all are in a social media environment. That's something that the right has. They have that muscle memory built into them from talk radio all the way back with Rush Limbaugh. These called themselves ditto heads. I, I repeat the thing I hear. Well, that's carried over to social media. You know, Rush Limbaugh used to have 30 million listeners um, that called themselves ditto heads. And there's a lot more than that, that are ditto heads, but online, that are just taking the things they see and reposting them. So that's the first thing is to recognize that it matters. The second is that, is that when you are seeing something is to just question it, especially if it seems too strange or too good. Um, a lot of times the stuff that you have the strongest reaction to, red flag. Um, one of the ways that misinformation and disinformation proliferate is through really high balance stuff, right? So one of the most traffic stories in 2016 was that Obama banned the Pledge of Allegiance. Literally, it was the single, one, the single most traffic story in 2016, that Obama banned the Pledge of Allegiance. Um, and that's because there are so many people that want to believe it, but it was terrifying for people. So they shared it without ever looking. And a lot of people weren't just automatically far right-wingers. Um, it was people worried about woke cancel culture and that kind of stuff. And you're seeing a lot of that happen at the local level now. Um, we see all kinds of misinformation about the culture wars that's being amplified by people that are not QAnon believers. They're just regular, they could go either way, sort of partisans. They're, they're just normal Americans. Like this is not, they don't think about politics first. So I'd be careful. Um, and I think that I would start, and you can't do it all, you know, fact checkers, no one else here needs another second or third job. I would say the big thing is if you have a gut reaction to it at first, odds are, check the source, it's probably a lie. Um, and then if you want to get involved in Media Matters, you can go to Media Matters or you can sign up for some of our stuff. And uh, that would be the, the third option. 
Perfect. Okay. Well, I, this has been amazing. Angelo, I really appreciate everything you dove into. You packed in a lot in such a short amount of time. For everybody listening, as, as, uh, as Angelo mentioned, please go to the Media Matters website on the side, give a donation and just, and stay active on their work and share it. And because I, I, I constantly see it in my line of work, you know, everything they're doing, the fight that, that, that you're doing, it is relentless. I can say as a media person myself, being on top of that stuff is a relentless fight. And we're also grateful to you uh, for doing it. Um, I am going to move to our next uh, panelist, Noah Bookbinder. Noah, thank you. Hi, Noah. Thank you for joining us. Um, Noah, I'm excited to be talking with Noah, who is the president and CEO of Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, which is a leading ethics watchdog organization that takes relentless legal and investigative actions holding people in power to account. Before joining uh, this, his current role, he was actually an attorney at the U.S. Department of Justice and chief counsel for criminal justice for the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee. Noah, can you just start out by explaining to us the mission and work of your organization? What are your top priorities right now? Please talk to us about corruption specifically and how you go about tackling this wide array of challenges. So, Hagar, uh, thanks so much for that really kind introduction, um, and thanks to the folks at Big Tent for inviting me. Um, it's just such an honor to be here uh, with such impressive company. Um, so, you know, and as 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 you and and others have um, have already said, you know, at at a time when uh, democracy is literally under attack in Europe. Um, it's also facing threats every day here in the United States, um, as as Governor Patrick. Um, explained so eloquently, uh, we're seeing efforts to restrict voting and, and, and silence diverse voices in the states. Uh, we're seeing efforts to give political officials the ability to overturn election results, uh, efforts to uh, rewrite the history of what happened on January 6, 2021, and to whitewash an insurrection. Uh, we're, we're also seeing a continuing flow. It's not getting as much attention as it used to, but a continuing flow of cash uh, to Donald Trump from his political allies who come to his properties on an almost daily basis and at the same time reinforce his lies. Uh, we're seeing dark money bankrolling those who undermine our democracy. Um, so, you know, ju just as, as, as we, um, I think, are all so inspired by um, the people literally uh, fighting to defend their democracy um, in, in Ukraine, um, you know, we need to be throwing everything we have against those who are chipping away every day at our democracy. Um, so in terms of the kinds of things we're thinking about at CREW, um, you know, there's a very narrow window to obtain a real accountability uh, for those who attacked our democracy on January 6, 2021, uh, for the four years of corruption and anti-democratic abuses that led directly to that, um, and for the continuing abuses since then that are part of efforts you know, by that same crowd to get themselves back into a position of power. Um, and if we don't have accountability, not only is it really impossible to restore the American people's faith in democracy and get, get people engaged again if they see that you can kind of get away with anything and, and, um, you know, and, and, and not face any consequences, um, but it, we're also not going to be able to stop the same people from doing the same things again. Um, we also have a narrow window to put into place reforms uh, to protect the democracy. Um, and, you know, as, as, as the governor said before, um, you know, it turns out that uh, 
the rules that we have now kind of aren't enough to, to, to stop people who want to uh, twist and abuse the system. Um, and we're already seeing that the opportunities for this uh, accountability and these reforms are diminishing. So we, we got to get in there and make it happen uh, before we lose those opportunities. So you know, we at Crew are, are really evaluating every action we take um, based on the question of you know, how can we best use our resources to protect and preserve democracy. We know that the other organizations here today are, are doing the same thing. Um, so we've been fighting since uh, 2003 in a very different world uh, then to establish an ethical government, to reduce the influence of money in politics, uh, to, to strengthen a democracy that works for the people it represents. Um, what do we do uh, for that? We, we, we sue a lot of people. Uh, we file a lot of lawsuits and, and complaints. We uncover documents and find violations. Uh, and work to move public opinion uh, in ways that promote democracy. So I'll, I'll sort of move from that to talking about some specific ways that that is applying itself in this kind of dangerous world for democracy uh, that we are facing in uh, in, in 2022. Um, so. Uh, the, the first you know, major thing that we're looking at is, is really trying to make sure that there's accountability for, um, for the abuses of the Trump era and beyond. Um, and you know, a good place to start with that, it seems sort of esoteric, but it's really important, uh, is, is documents and the destruction of documents. Um, so you know, something that we saw through four years was that um, Donald Trump and his administration tried to make sure there were no records of what they were doing. Um, and for four years, uh, crew filed lawsuits, uh, often with partners, um, you know, for instance, about the destruction of documents, um, of records of Donald Trump's meetings with Vladimir Putin, among other things. Um, and Weren't they flushed down the toilet, something like this? <laughs> uh, some of them were flushed down the toilet, apparently. Uh, definitely a lot of them were torn up. Um, you know, some of them never were never made at all because people were instructed not to take any notes. Um, so we filed lawsuits. Um, we even filed a lawsuit in December 2020 um, to stop uh, the out, to try to stop the outgoing administration from destroying records because we knew they were going to do that. Um, they did that, uh, and um, and then we find out in the last month that uh, not only did Donald Trump take 15 boxes of documents with him to Mar-a-Lago, um, but uh, the January 6th uh, committee in the House was receiving records from January 6th that had been torn up. In some cases, they were taped together. In some cases, they weren't taped together. Um, so Noah, can I, can I interrupt you for just a second so I can tell all of the listeners why this matters so much? Um, I worked at the White House for three years, and we were trained in record keeping. They actually had a training every year that you had to take in record keeping. It was given by the council or a group of council, a group of attorneys. And when I left, I remember how long it took to record to, you had to give literally every single piece of paper, meaning notebooks, the, my, my planner pages, every single piece of paper that I wrote on while in those three years I was at the White House had to be documented, had to be put in a box and given to the records keeping. And we were, it was instilled in us that you don't do that. That's breaking the law, right? I mean, it was it was something very serious that we all followed. It's crazy. Absolutely, and it and it it's it's not you know it's not just about. I mean, it is important for historians to have those records. But what we're seeing here is um, 
is, is not just a disregard for the law and the rules, but actually a systematic effort to destroy the evidence of abuses. Um, and, you know, so that is why, um, you know, we last month, we filed uh, with, with another organization called the National Security Archive, we filed a complaint calling on the Justice Department to investigate. Uh, the day after we did that, the National Archives, which is the agency that, that is in charge of all this stuff, um, themselves requested a Justice Department investigation. Uh, the House Oversight Committee announced their own investigation. So we, we are trying to move this from something that, that, that seems, you know, removed from people uh, to something that people really care about and to somewhere where there could be genuine accountability. Um, and then we sort of um, move up from there to you know, trying to make sure that there is real accountability, including criminal, for the efforts, this systematic plot that we saw to overturn an election. Um, and you know, one place uh, to, to start with that was actually even in a couple of days before January 6, 2021, uh, when we all learned that Donald Trump had called uh, the Secretary of State of Georgia, Brad Raffensperger, to pressure him to act to overturn that state's uh, presidential election results. Um, you know, we looked at that and we saw that that um, that looked to us like it like it violated uh, state law and federal law. Um, we filed a complaint with the the district attorney in Fulton County and with the Department of Justice, asking for for a probe into that. Um, you know, laying out the violations. Um, the the DA in Fulton County, Georgia, has opened that investigation. Um, is still pu pushing forward. Uh, just I think last month, um, uh, she obtained a special grand jury to. Um, you know, advance that investigation. And we've continued to file complaints at all levels of, of government and laying out a, a template for potential charges that can be brought against Donald Trump and his associates. Um, you know, we've also been, you know, working closely with the January 6th committee in the House, making sure that, um, you know, they, they're doing yeoman's work in uh, getting testimony, getting documents, we're getting some different stuff that they don't have, and we're providing that to them. Um, and, uh, you know, just, uh, just today, uh, we actually put up on Crew's website, a tracker of credible allegations of criminal violations by Donald Trump while he was president and while he was running for president. Uh, so, so far, we've, we've tracked 48 credible allegations of criminal violations by the former president of the United States, which when you think of it is pretty remarkable. Um, and actually a number of those have to do with withholding aid to Ukraine, withholding military aid to Ukraine, which um, I think a lot of people don't remember. Um, and that's something that, that looks pretty different right now. Um, you know, we're also looking into um, using uh, the, the, the 14th Amendment to removed from office those who, who participated in insurrection. We've written about that, we're, we're looking into action on that, so kind of stay tuned on that. Um, and then if, if, if there's time, and stop me if, uh, but um, I wanted to talk, you had asked about corruption more specifically. And, um, you know, I, I wanna say, you know, corruption, the sort of use of office um, to benefit yourself financially, which is, you know, what, what Donald Trump did for four years in office. Um, it's, it's not a side note. It really goes directly into, um, in, into maintaining a, a, a working democracy because when you have that kind of corruption, it makes government, 
into something that's about advancing an individual's interest, about benefiting that person instead of benefiting the public interest. And that lays the groundwork for changing the system to help out the individuals in charge instead of the people. Um, so, you know, we tracked uh, all of the conflicts of interest between the Trump presidency and Trump's businesses. And by the end of uh, his four years in office, we had tracked more than 3,700 conflicts between the businesses and the presidency. Um, and you know, it didn't stop when he left office. Uh, we just put out uh, a report last month finding uh, 235 visits by government officials and political candidates to Trump's properties since he left office. So he's still profiting from the presidency. Um, he's also still using his businesses to, to increase his political influence. It's a sort of circle. Um, and it goes well beyond uh, Donald Trump himself. We're seeing that corruption kind of spreading out. So uh, last month, uh, the new governor in Virginia, uh, Glenn Youngkin, uh, nominated Andrew Wheeler uh, to be Secretary of, of Natural and Historic Resources in Virginia. Andrew Wheeler was head of the EPA under Donald Trump. Um, and we filed multiple um, ethics complaints against him uh, because he repeatedly used that position that, that is you know, really for protecting the environment for all of us. He used that to benefit former clients, benefit financial interests. Um, and we you know, drew on those complaints to argue that um, you know, his ethical misconduct and his conflict of interest make him unfit to then go on and, and lead uh, environmental affairs in, in Virginia. Um, and actually, you know, we, that's something that we pushed really hard on. And the Virginia um, State Senate has now repeatedly rejected uh, that nomination. It's not dead yet, uh, so that's a that's an ongoing issue. But you know, we're seeing this same kind of corruption spreading. Um, we're also seeing it. Um, you know, it, when you get your mail delivered every day, um, uh, Louis DeJoy is still the Postmaster General of the United States, and you know, we started in uh, even the summer of 2020, spreading sounding the alarm that uh, DeJoy was a threat to voting by mail. Um, and, uh, and he turned out to be, um, but we've continued looking at using the Freedom of Information Act and other tools to uncover really troubling conflicts of interest that he has. Um, and then to pressure, we, um, we work to pressure uh, President Biden not to reappoint uh, the chair of the board of, of the Postal Service that, that um, you know, had, who had been protecting DeJoy uh, and that actually happened, he, he, um, that guy's moved out, there's an opportunity for accountability there. Um, and I'll mention one other topic, but then I'll stop because uh, I have been gone for a while, which yeah, is- Then we have to wrap up with one, one last question that I'll ask you, yeah. Yeah, no, so I was just gonna say that, that you know, the, the final piece is really doing everything that we can and, and trying to push Congress and the administration to do everything we can to strengthen those guardrails, to strengthen those rules. Let me stop there though and-, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> My question was really more about how we can help, we Americans can help hold, um, hold officials and, uh, and anyone else we should be holding accountable. How can we help and how can we help your organization specifically? And do you see a light at the end of the tunnel? I mean, are you seeing progress um, in this space or is it just, you know, your salmon swimming upstream and there's a lot more? <laughs> um, so, uh, all great questions. And first of all, I think you know, one of the ways that people can, can help on this is by 
kind of making it known that you care about this. So, you know, the, the, the January 6th committee is going to hold um, really blockbuster hearings and they're going to put out a report that is going to be, um, I, I am confident, absolutely devastating in what it finds. Um, but it only matters if people watch those hearings and if people tell uh, their members of Congress that they care about that work, that they want that to continue, if they demand action from Congress and from the administration uh, on what they hear, um, because the evidence is going to be there. Uh, but it's hard to, um, uh, to, to, it takes a lot of political capital to bring prosecutions in politically sensitive cases, um, even though it shouldn't be political at all. And, um, you know, the, the you know, Congress and the administration needs to know that people care. They need to know that, that people want democracy reform, that, that people think it's more important than the filibuster. There was a setback uh, last month, um, and it's easy to sort of turn the page. But, um, you know, people really need to be telling their members of Congress, uh, their state legislators, where, um, you know, where a lot of quietly, a lot of democracy is being eroded, um, that, you know, you're paying attention. Um, uh, of course, we'd love for people to go to uh, citizensforethics.org or follow us on, on Twitter at uh, Crew Crew. We're, we're, we're constantly keeping people informed about all of this and how you can get involved on specific reform efforts, specific accountability efforts. Um, and finally, I, I guess I would just say, um, you know, sometimes it feels like a salmon swimming upstream, um, but we have seen real progress. These investigations are moving forward. Um, we saw a Justice Department that originally was, uh, Justice Department in this administration was originally uh, kind of fighting us and covering for the Trump administration. Uh, they're not doing that anymore. Um, they are turning over records. They are, um, you know, th there's a lot more they can and should do, but we've seen real progress. We've seen progress in Congress. Um, you know, we got to keep pushing because it's, it's, it's hard work. Yeah. Thank you so much, Noah. You, we're so grateful for your work and the work of your organization. And um, as Noah said to everybody out there listening, the link to his website, to the organization's website is in the chat and sign up for the newsletter. It is remarkable. And also uh, consider helping them out, but please help them out. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. We are for we last but not least, um, our next panel and final panel will be with Joanna Lidgate, who is the founder and CEO of States United Democracy Center, which is a nonpartisan organization advancing free, fair, and secure elections. And prior to launching States United, um, Joanna Lidgate served as the Chief Deputy Attorney General of Massachusetts. Um, Joanna, it's great to see you. Thank you for joining. I'm very excited to meet you. Can you give us a brief update on the role that States United Democracy Center is playing in protecting our democracy? Absolutely, and thanks so much, Hagar, for doing this. Um, I love your show. I encourage everyone to tune in. And I'm so thrilled to be back with the Big Tent family um, and special thanks to the organizers and to all of you for tuning in. Democracy is a team sport, as we like to say at States United, and the work Big Ten does to get Americans engaged has truly never been more critical than it is right now. Um, so thank you. And thank you for your thoughtful words about Ukraine. Um, beyond the devastation of the Russian invasion, the last week has been such a stark reminder of what's at stake in this fight between democracy and autocracy. And I'm wearing my blue and yellow tonight. Um, 
And well done. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Um, and, and I just want to note that, you know, last year the U.S. was designated for the first time as a backsliding democracy. That was a really big deal. So as you said, to be a leader on the world stage, to be able to protect democracy abroad, we absolutely have to strengthen our democracy here at home. And as the leader of a bipartisan organization, I just also want to say that, you know, we're seeing this incredible show of support right now across the globe for the Ukrainian people. And that is exactly as it should be. And it's also a really good reminder to us as Americans that democracy should be an issue that brings us together, not one that divides us. Um, so how do we do this work of democracy protection here at home? Um, we've heard three really important perspectives, and I'm going to talk about what I see as really the front line in the fight, uh, because at States United, what we do is support the state and local officials who are the people who run and oversee and defend our elections, people on both sides of the aisle, um, and they are the ones who really hold the keys to the kingdom that is our democracy because elections are national events, but of course they're run by the states. And um, tonight I wanna talk a little bit about the threats that those election officials are facing, not just the threats to themselves, although they are facing those, but also the threats to the system itself and what we're doing about it. And I wanna make sure to also save a minute to talk about what everyone else on this Zoom can do about it, because I think that's so critical. Um, but just, you know, to sort of sketch out the anti-democracy strategy as we see it from our perspective, it's, it's very well coordinated, but it's actually pretty simple. And it comes down to three things. It's change the rules, change the referees in order to change the outcome. And when we talk about changing the rules and Governor Patrick touched on this a little bit, you know, this is really about changing the way elections are run through bills that have been introduced all across the country. Um, some of these are bills that would make it harder to vote, but some of them are bills that we call election hijacking bills that would really transfer power over our elections out of the hands of trusted nonpartisan election officials and into the hands of really highly partisan actors, typically state legislatures. Um, and we've been tracking these trends for months now. My colleague Lauren can put in the chat our latest report on this issue. But there were 262 bills introduced last year in 41 states that do some form of this, you know, politicizing, criminalizing, or interfering with the way elections are run. And 32 of them became law in 17 states. So this is a real thing that's happening in the states right now. And those figures don't even include the voter suppression bills that the governor that the governor talked about. So in a nutshell, even though this was, as he also said, the most secure election in American history, don't take my word for it, take the word of Trump's own election security experts, um, there are certain politicians who are trying to make it both harder for all of us to vote and easier for them to overturn our vote if they don't like the outcome. So as I said, the second prong of the strategy is change the referees. So I coach a lot of youth sports. Maybe that this, this analogy comes from that. But you know what this is all about is really election deniers who are running for office now all across the country to try to replace the good bipartisan election officials who protected our votes and our election in 2020. These are stop the seal supporters. These are people who spread lies and conspiracy theories about our election. These are, some of them were even people who went to the Capitol on January 6th, and they now want to oversee our elections. 
And through our C4 organization, which is called States United Action, um, we've also been tracking this trend. Lauren can also put in the chat our new Replacing the Refs tracker, which really looks at all these candidates across the country. And the takeaway is that we have two out of three races right now nationally for governor and secretary of state in which an election denier is running. And the number is one in three for races for attorney general. And again, these are the people who oversee our elections. These are the people who have the keys to the kingdom. So this really matters. They set the rules for voting. They defend strong voting laws. They oversee the running of elections and the counting of our ballots and, and the certification of the election. And then they defend that outcome, just like they did in 2020. Um, but running against good election officials isn't the only strategy. There's also an effort to intimidate them and to drive them out of office, right? And we've seen that all across the country too. We've seen good nonpartisan officials dealing with violent threats and harassment just for doing their jobs, people showing up at their houses, threatening them and their children. One in three election officials reports feeling unsafe in their job, which is totally insane. And then we also see an effort to criminalize those jobs, right? To make it scary to do them. Um, and there are bills being introduced that, you know, create big fines and the possibility of felony prosecution for even minor errors in election administration. And then of course, we're seeing sheriffs and attorneys general and other anti-democratic actors who are quote, investigating and threatening to jail election officials simply for doing their jobs. And then I'm gonna give one more piece of bad news before I get to the good news, because there is a lot of good news and I really do wanna focus on that. I think that's really critical. Um, the strategy of changing the rules and changing the refs is really predicated on disinformation. And Angelo talked about this and you know the work he does is just incredible and so critical in this space, but it's you know really the use of lies and conspiracy theories to sow doubt in the system. So you create buy-in by convincing people that the system isn't trustworthy um, so that you can make changes to it. And one example of this is the use of these bogus election audits uh, that you may have heard of that have cropped up you know, in Arizona and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. This was the most audited, audited litigated election in US history. So this is just about keeping election lies alive. Um, and when you combine that with the information that's pumped out, the misinformation that's pumped out by right-wing outlets, you end up, of course, with two out of three Republicans who still think that the 2020 election was stolen to this day. Um, yeah, two out of three. Yeah. And, and you know, the consequence of that is not just the possibility for an actually stolen election in the future. It's also a rise in political violence in this country that's deeply concerning. Um, you know, we have 30% of Americans today who say that violence against the government might sometimes be justified. That's the highest number we've seen. Um, and so that's an area that we really tackle as an organization as well. Okay, so deep breaths. <laughs> um, because there, there's a lot that we're doing uh, alongside incredible sister organizations all across the country. Um, and with amazing supporters, um, like all of you. So have it's not all doom and gloom. That's it is not all doom and gloom. It is not all doom and gloom. Um, and I think it's really important to, to keep emphasizing that because people should have faith in our system. Um, it's an incredible system. And again, we see so much right now what's at stake. So um, 
the good news is that we have a plan. The bad guys have a plan, but we have one too. And the first thing we're doing is is just working um, so hard to safeguard our elections. We're in, at States United. We represent the state and local officials who, um, as I said, are you know doing this work day in and day out across the country. We help them challenge these fake election investigations. We help them defend strong voting laws. We help them prepare to defend the results again in 2022 as they did in 2020 with those 60 plus lawsuits that the Trump campaign filed. The second thing we're doing is we're working to prevent political violence. Um, we work really closely with law enforcement at the local, state, and national levels um, to monitor threats to election officials and to make sure election officials and voters are safe, that the system is safe and everyone has access to it. And finally, and uh, you know, Noah, of course, and crew do incredible work in this space. We're working to hold accountable those who step outside the bounds of our democracy. We need to have consequences. And I was a, a prosecutor in my former life. I think this is so critical. We have filed a lawsuit against the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys on behalf of the District of Columbia. We're working to disbar uh, the bad lawyers who filed that frivolous litigation um, and to try to overturn the election. And um, those are just a couple of examples of our work, but it's going to take all of us absolutely to hold the line uh, and protect our democracy in the year and years ahead. And I think probably you, Hagar, have friends and family like I do who really kind of tuned out after 2020 and kind of felt like, okay, you know, we're good. Our system oh, yeah. is like we made it, it through. Yeah. You, see it, you see it all the time. And um, it's really time for people to tune back in. That's what I'll say, because the anti-democratic forces in this country have only doubled down since 2020. Um, and so, again, I'll reiterate how grateful I am uh, for folks like you and groups like this one. Um, yeah, and happy to talk about whatever you think, whatever, you know, what people can do, I think is that's, that's actually, that's you, um, you uh, are a step ahead of me. Uh, the thing that I wanted to ask you was, what are the actual items that we as Americans can take to help this really important effort uh, and cause? Well, I mean, everyone is taking taking a step tonight by being on this Zoom, so that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. I think um, the number one thing I would say is pay attention to who's running for office for these critical jobs that involve overseeing our elections. Governor, state attorney general, secretary of state, but also your county and local positions. These down ballot races are so critical, especially in 2022. There are candidates on both sides of the aisle who are committed to protecting democracy. And I really encourage you to get involved to support pro-democracy candidates financially and with your time. Um, and if you want extra credit, uh, consider running for office yourself or sign up to be a poll worker. More than 80% of our local election officials are women. Um, I think that's really cool. And a lot of these down ballot races, especially for the local positions, go unopposed. So um, that is a really fun way to get involved. Second, I would say pay attention to what's happening in your state legislature. I talked about all the bills that are pending. Nearly every state legislature is in session right now. Many are considering bills that would change the way our elections are run um, and not just in the states you might expect. So um, we talk a lot about contacting your member of Congress, but I would say you can and should contact your state senator or representative too and really try to tune into what's happening at the state level. 
third, and, and Angelo touched on this, you know, look to trusted sources of information and spread the word about the need to do that. Your Secretary of State's website might not be the most like beautifully designed thing in the world, but it is the place that has trustworthy information about voting and elections. And um, they are the authorities on what's true and what's not. Posts on Facebook and Twitter are not. Um, and again, spread the word about that. And finally, I would say, talk to the amazing folks at Big Ten. Yes, and finally, what gives you hope that we will win this battle for our country? Um, oof, it's such a good question. And uh, honestly, I wake up every day and I think about a statistic, um, which is that 77% of Americans want every vote counted in this country more than they want their preferred candidate to win. So what we saw from Donald Trump does not reflect the actual view or the will of the American people. And this anti-democratic contingent, this election denier contingent in this country is loud, but it really is the minority. And I truly believe that the American people want a system that's fair, that's representative, a system that's not rigged, right? We the people, it's like the most foundational concept of our country. Um, you know, we protected the system in 2020. We can and will do it again. The courts have been strong allies in this fight. Even Trump appointed judges dismissed all of his lawsuits. Um, and, you know, we have incredible pro-democracy leaders across this country, as I said, on both sides of the aisle who bravely stepped up in 2020 and protected the will of the American people despite, you know, the most insane threats and climate around them and they'll do it again if we protect them and the system they administer and if we support them um and it's going to come down to putting country over party at the end of the day and getting the word out about what's at stake yeah it's i couldn't agree more um well thank you so much i so appreciate you being here uh for everyone listening there are a number of links in the chat related to uh, statistics that were mentioned, reports, um, go to the link for States United Democracy Center. Uh, we're so grateful for your work and, uh, and we appreciate you being here tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Hadar. Yeah. Um, I wanna thank all of today's speakers. We're so grateful for their time and the fact that they put, took their time out tonight to talk to us and prepare these, these, this talk. Um, I also wanna thank all of you for for taking you the time out of your day to listen to us and to listen to this and to be a part of this effort because it is so, if there's anything we're walking away with from today's chat, it's how urgent this work is and how we all need to be working on it together and we all need to get our friends to work on it and we need our friends to get their friends to work on it and just doing that will really inspire everybody. So thank you to all of you, and thank you for doing this in front of a computer. I know the virtual setting is not the best, but we're so appreciative. Um, and I want to make another urgent plea to get involved, get your hands dirty, cut a check. Nobody cuts a check anymore. You know, give your credit card to the organizations that we featured today and 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 discussed with, and and do all the things that they mentioned to get involved, to make your voice count, to hold officials accountable. Um, and, uh, and, you know, every little bit, every little bit matters, uh, because without, our, without our democracy, we're Russia. So thank you. Thank you, Hagar. And we really appreciate your willingness to stay on uh, even a little bit longer. Um, you've done a yeoman's job tonight. Um, we are deeply, deeply grateful. 
but I just wanted to have a quick, ask you a quick question about uh, sanctions and um, you know, what, what you see is going on um, with European allies and the United States, how sanctions are functioning, why maybe we haven't seen the payoff we were hoping for, you know, people like me who don't really understand them. Um, can you just give us a, like a five minute download on sanctions and what you see sort of coming down the pike, what's working, what's not? Yes, absolutely. I'm more than happy to talk right, uh, to talk about this issue, and I can talk sanctions all day. Uh, so the way, first of all, the way sanctions work in general, when the United States imposes sanctions and Europe as well, when they name a target, uh, any person, any individual, a government agency, a business, and so on, what that means in practicality is that the assets of that organization or person within U.S. jurisdiction that just does that doesn't just mean here in the United States, that means in a branch of a US bank or so on, those assets are frozen. And any US person, again, individual, business, bank, so on, is prohibited from doing business with the target name. And what that does is unleash mar global market forces. So you don't just have the practical effect here in the United States, but people around the world, businesses around the world, financial institutions around the world, they end up also cutting ties with that target ceasing business with that target, closing bank accounts, whatever it might be, because they, they want to maintain their relationship with New York. They want to continue doing business in dollars. They want to maintain their reputation. And they don't want to get in the crosshairs of US sanctions. Nobody wants a fine from the US Treasury Department. And what ends up happening is that you isolate that target. And in this case in particular, you can see the Biden administration with these steps and with their messaging is focused on making Russia an international pariah and really collecting the entire world. And they've really done a good job at it to join us in this fight. The steps that you've seen so far are unprecedented. And I don't think I can stress how tough the sanctions are and how quickly they were implemented. Sanctions usually take a very long time to craft and to implement. You have teams of analysts at the Treasury Department who are policy analysts for sanctions, who work with economists and, and, and so on to figure out which are the best targets, which will inflict financial pain without harming the broader population abroad and also with minimizing backlash on US and European business. And first you have to take the time to analyze and list the pros and cons of each target. Then all the interagency, the whole government has to decide that uh, to agree, they agree on which targets to pursue. And then a whole evidentiary is created, meaning an, like an indictment proving that the target is engaged in sanctionable behavior. So this usually takes a long time. So you can see Treasury had been planning these for a while and preparing them, but to roll them out as fast as they did. And in sequence, I mean, so quickly, they ramped them up so heavily. These, they rolled out the toughest sanctions among the toughest sanctions that they have in their toolbox, sanctioning the head of state, sanctioning uh, the biggest financial institutions, the financial institutions they targeted in Russia hold 80% of the country's assets. Um, they sanctioned parts of the, they, they levied sanctions against the central bank of Russia. They cut off certain financial institutions from SWIFT, which is a messaging system. It's where all financial messages related to transactions, um, all secure information, that's what goes through SWIFT. So these measures are very strong. 
And that doesn't mean there's not more they could do. There is more they could do. They could always target Russia's sectors like oil and gas, iron, steel, platinum, timber, all these sectors that uh, Russia, you know, benefits from enormously from its trade. Um, so there's always more they could do. But these, these sanctions are super tough. And the thing that I see often, you know, to put this in the context of the broader strategy, that you saw last week a lot, and this is why I was on air all the time talking about it, was everybody thought that this was Biden's response to the invasion, that this was the main response, that this was the main weapon we were, we were using. So every reporter was asking, well, this isn't going to change Putin's behavior. And the thing is, sanctions are never meant to solely change behavior. Otherwise, that would be setting an unrealistic expectation for them. They are meant to increase pressure to help in changing behavior. And they are supposed to be part and parcel of a broader strategy. And the Biden administration knows that. So the strategy that you see them pursuing on one hand is this information campaign, right? They have been declassifying information as quickly as possible, putting it out there as soon as possible to win that information war and make sure that they're beating Putin at his own game. And I think that they very much succeeded in that. Um, they have been arming Ukraine. I would argue that that's, that's more important than the sanctions. Uh, they uh, just announced, actually, they started with 200 million. Now they've announced an additional 350 million in, in military aid. And that needs to be as tough as possible and as quickly as possible. And again, this leadership, the way they've been strong on this and leading on this, you can see has mobilized all the other countries. Germany's move to support Ukraine and send military aid is, is also something unprecedented. Switzerland imposing sanctions is totally unprecedented. Um, and so you see kind of these forces lobbying against Putin, uniting about uniting against in this fight against him. And I do think that that is remarkable. The question now is what the end game looks like and how how we get out of it. And and that is that is kind of that's kind of a whole other baby. And it could go either way. Um, we have already taken a lot of time. I'll just end on that. I'll give you like just my my thoughts on it is it's very hard to predict how this can go because President Putin is the most unpredictable leader. That is not new. He was when I was in government, we always used to say that about him. He's very unpredictable. And it's very hard to put yourself in his shoes. And um, unfortunately, in my experience, dealing with working on undermining dictators, which is what I did most of my government career, dictator psychology is very different. And they tend to, they tend to double down in scenarios where they feel they're losing. And they are very, it's very rare that they start to think rationally and they sit down at the table and think, okay, you know what, like, let's cut a deal because clearly I made a miscalculation. They don't have the rationale for that. They don't have the ego or narcissistic ego for that. They're extremely narcissistic. And Putin, if he goes back to Moscow to his people with a loss like this, he it will be the end of his own political career. So that's his thinking is that he cannot lose. So it's hard to know which way this is going to go, whether we can walk him back or whether he's going to double down. It'll be catastrophic. It'll probably be a mix of both. Uh, and so I don't have a lot of hope, unfortunately, but um, it's very sad. It's very, very sad. And it's very worrisome for the international world order that has been set up since the end of World War II. Yes, that's <laughs> deep breaths. As Joanna said, deep breaths. Um, <laughs> well, 
Hagar, uh, again, thank you so much for guiding us through tonight, your energy, your wisdom. Uh, we really couldn't have done this without you. And I, so I just want to remind people to go to Hagar's website, subscribe to her YouTube channel, Oh My World. As you can see, she's someone worth following and we all need to pay attention to her. Um, I also just want to thank our terrific and amazing democracy superheroes. We are so grateful for the work that they do and for their time coming to the Big Tent. We'll put all their information and in the recap to this. Um, so check them out, please, and share them with your friends and share the recap. We really need to get everybody involved if we're going to save our democracy. It's about the United States, the citizens of the United States, but it's also about the world. We have upcoming events. So very quickly on Wednesday, March 16th at 7 p.m., we will host Daniel Squadron from Future Now to discuss the critical issue of funding state and local races. And as Joanna just reminded us, we really need to be paying attention to the states and local races. On the 5th of April at noon, Mi Vecino, the fastest growing voter registration organization in Florida is coming for a tent talk. Um, I think we all know our democracy needs rescuing. It needs each and every one of us to get engaged. It needs each and every one of us to reach out to our friends, our family. This is a no holds bar moment for us. And I think what we see in Ukraine reminds us that we need to stand together around the world and with each other. And Big Tent is here to do that. So I just wanna thank everyone for coming. Thank you, Hagar. And I wish everyone a pleasant evening and watch Joe Biden at his State of the Union. Thanks everybody.